So we're going to look at Gideon. This week we're going to look at the God behind Gideon because uh, Chase set it up. We, we saw a lot about Gideon. Gideon is a guy. He's a guy not unlike you and I. Uh, he's uh, got some weaknesses. He's got some foibles, some fears, some faults, but he also has some faith. How much faith? Well, enough to get some things done. Um, and so what I want to do is step back and take a look at how did he get anything done? How was his life used? And it all goes back to God. It always goes back to God. And the more I study through this book, the more I realize that it's a book about God. It's not a book about these judges. It's not even a book about the Israelites. It's about God, the almighty God of the universe. And if we look back at chapter 6, verses 8 through 10, here's what God says to the people of Israel. He says, I led you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians. From the hand of all who oppressed you, I drove them out before you. I gave you their land. He said, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. There's that indictment, okay? We've seen at least three or four times now the people did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So here's the Lord telling them, here's what I have done for you. And notice how many times, and I've plugged in a couple of eyes. They're all inferred there, but God is saying, I, 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 I. It's not Barak, it's not Deborah, it's not Othniel, it's not Ehud, and it's not Gideon, it's God. But what's the problem? They can't seem to keep it in their head that it's about God. It always ends up being about them or perhaps about their leader. Whatever leader pops up that God sends, it suddenly becomes about the leader. He's the leader, he's the deliverer, and we're going to see that today. But God is trying to let them know it's about me. And that's what makes these stories so powerful is that they remind us that God can use anybody. God can use anybody in this room. You know, Chase made a comment last week that he, he felt unqualified uh, to get up here and speak. I feel unqualified every week I speak in here. Um, there's nothing I bring to the table. What I bring is my relationship with Christ and what he's doing in my life. Well, the same thing's true of Gideon. We saw him in verse 15. He says, my clan's the weakest. Who am I? Why are you choosing me? And he says, I'm the least of my father's house. One of the things that's going to be interesting we're going to see this morning is that he was a brother, but probably one of the youngest brothers of many brothers. And he's like, why me? When David got chosen, David was the least in his household. His father didn't think enough of him to even bring him before the prophet when he showed up at his house. He's out watching the sheep. And, and yet, God chose David. God's going to choose Gideon. And Gideon was a man who was afraid. We know that he was told by God to go tear down your father's household idol to Baal. And he was afraid to do it, so he did it at night. So Chase drove, drove it home last week. This is a guy who suffered with fear, with weakness. He was a complex, complicated guy. Not unlike you and I. There's a lot about you and I that's good. There's a lot about you and I that's not so good. And that's what we see in Gideon. He, he was a man who had a lot of different character qualities about him. And some of them we can look at and we can emulate. Some I would recommend we don't emulate. Uh, don't follow his lead. Don't follow his example. But the important thing about Gideon that I see, and it's true of every one of these uh, judges, is that they're a byproduct of their environment. They are who they are, who they are because of what they've been through. So what do we know about this guy? And this is all just, again, to set up where we're going this morning, but this is a guy who lived within a community 
a group of people who had chosen to disobey God. Remember what God said, we just read it. He said, you have disobeyed my voice. You do not listen to what I say. And so he had grown up in that environment. How long had they disobeyed? Well, at this point, it's seven years. We looked two weeks ago, it was 20 years. They have a track record of disobedience. And so in this case, for seven years, they've been in disobedience. And that's the environment in which he lives. It says, Manasseh did not drive out the Canaanites. Manasseh is his tribe. He lives within a tribe, within a community that is disobedient and has been for years. And that's what he's learned. His own countrymen are unfaithful. How do we know that? Well, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's how chapter 6 opens up, the story of Gideon. He lives amongst unfaithful people. Now, think about it. If that's the environment in which you grow up in, I don't know anything about most of your lives. I don't know where you were born. I don't know what your parents are like. I don't know if they were believers, if they were pagans, atheists, agnostics. I don't know. I don't know what schools you went to. I don't know your environment. But I do know this. Your environment has had an impact on you. You know, I grew up in New York. I moved there when I was four years old, and I spent all my school years in New York. That's why I'm sarcastic. Um, that's why sometimes I can be hard and harsh, and I can say things that I wish I hadn't said because that was survival in New York. Um, I'm a byproduct of a, my, my environment. So are you. So is Gideon. And he's surrounded with all this stuff. And this is the one that amazes me the most, is that we blow past this story of his dad having an idol to Baal literally in his backyard. Now think about it. We, we look at Gideon. Well, he's an Israelite. He's a God worshiper. He's part of the chosen people of God. No, his dad is worshiping Baal, and so is he and his brothers. You know, Gideon didn't have this dynamic relationship with God Almighty Gideon was a byproduct of his environment. And he's told, go tear down the altar that your father has. And it wasn't just for him, it was for the whole community, as we saw in the story last week. So this is the environment in which he grows up. And the end result is you got a guy who's got some good qualities and some bad qualities, right? He's been infected and impacted by this. And we looked at it last week. He's got all kinds of doubts and fears. When the angel of the Lord appears to him in the bottom of that wine press and says, hey, I got a job for you, he says, why is this happening? Why, why is God letting all this happen? He basically shakes his fist in the face of God and says, why? If there's a God, why are you letting all this happen? If there's a God, why are the Midianites pursuing us and persecuting us? And then he says, where's all your deeds? Where's all the great stuff you used to do? You're not doing anything now, God. Remember, this is a guy who's basically worshiping a false god. And then the angel of the real god shows up, and he's got all kinds of, oh, yeah, why? And then he starts playing the game of, you've forsaken us. You've left us. You want to know why my dad's got bail in the backyard? Because you've forsaken us. Here's a piece of free advice. Never accuse God of forsaking you. I'm just telling you. I don't know what it'll do, but I just don't think God smiles on people who blame him for forsaking them. Because what do we know about the Israelites? They had forsaken him. They had turned their back on God. We see it over and over again. And then he says, okay, how am I supposed to do this? How can I save Israel? Who am I? I'm the least of my clan. I'm the least of my brothers. And then he says he's too afraid. So he goes at night. So we know he's a, he's a fearful guy. 
And you remember the tests that he gave? Those, those fleeces that he put out? Another piece of free advice? Don't use fleeces as an example of how to communicate with God. It's not a wise thing to do. God was gracious. God, God was kind. But fleeces are not something that we're biblically supposed to do. He puts out a fleece and he says, okay, God, I'll believe it's you if in the morning the ground is wet and the fleece is dry. He wakes up in the morning just like that. Dry fleece, wet ground. Then he goes, um, one more test. This time, make the ground dry and the fleece wet. And amazingly, God goes, okay. If I were God, I'd say, all right, never mind. Go back in the wine press. I'll find somebody else. But he does it, and that's exactly what happens. He's testing God. He's fearful. He's doubtful. He's afraid to step out, and yet he does step out, right? He tears down the altar. He gets blamed, rightfully so, for having torn down the altar, and his neighbors want to kill him for having done so. But yet he did it. He did it at night because he was fearful, but he did it, and what he feared actually happened. They want to kill him, but he did it. He sounds the trumpet, he sins for messengers. He's a guy who, in spite of himself, is stepping out in faith. And that's what God's calling you and I to do. See, I've got lots of fears. I've got lots of doubts. So do you. At the end of the day, it's not the measurement of how much more faith do you have than your doubt. It's do you have faith at all? Are you willing to step out in spite of your faith or your, your fears? See, he did. He was a man who did what God called him to do. So it's not about the amount of his faith or the amount of his fear. That's not what this story is about. You've got both. Some days I'm more faithful than I am fearful. Some days it's the reverse. The story is really about the God behind him that's driving him to do what he's doing. So again, it's not about his exploits. It's not about his excuses. And sometimes when we read these stories, we turn them into Sunday school stories where we say, you know, what can we learn from Gideon? Well, Gideon was a man of faith. Gideon was a man of fear. Don't be a man of fear. Don't be a, you need to be a man of faith. And that's true, but that's not really the point of the story. The, the point of the story is who's behind Gideon? Who's the God behind Gideon? It is, is it Baal, the idol in his dad's backyard, or is it Yahweh? And, and we're going to see it's all about Yahweh. I love this from Kenneth Way. He says, God's glory and kingship must trump our doubts, our fears, and desires to take control or take credit. See, I've got fears, you've got fears, we've got doubts, and we always want credit. Everything we do, we want credit. We want a pat on the back. We want people to notice. And even Gideon, as a judge, is going to want to be noticed. He's going to want to be recognized for what is happening, even though it's really God's glory. That's the, the main point of the whole story. God wants glory for himself. God is not out to give me glory. He's out to bring himself glory. And at no moment of any day does God wake up, if God wakes up, and look down and go, man, I can't wait to see what Ken does to get glory. I wake up thinking that. I can't wait to see what I accomplish today. I'm just good to get my shoes on in the morning. But see, God looks down and he goes, I can't wait to see how Ken's life brings me glory through my power in Ken. And that's what Gideon's going to have to learn. So where did we leave Gideon last week? Verses 34 and 35 of chapter 6 says, The Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet. 
He calls the people. And this idea of him being uh, clothed with the Spirit of God, what's important to understand is that was a temporary clothing, and it's going to become more important as we move through the story. Because unlike us, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us for how long? Permanently, forever, never leaves us, never forsakes us. In the Old Testament, it was a temporary indwelling. He would come on a person, and he would leave that person. And he came on that person for a purpose, for a reason, to empower them, to guide them, to direct them. And so he has the Spirit of God clothing him. And we're going to see there's a point in time in the story where it's pretty obvious the Holy Spirit has left this guy. And he's now operating in Gideon's power, not the Spirit's power. But the Spirit comes on him, and it says he sounds the trumpet, he sends for messengers, and they gather to meet him. Okay, they're going to meet. He's calling people to come to meet him in the valley so they can go up against the Midianites. It's the whole reason God called him out of that wine press. I got a job for you to do. You're the deliverer. You're the judge. You're going to deliver the people of Israel, and I'm going to use you to do it. But look at chapter 7, verse 1. This is kind of interesting, and it's something that, again, we blow past when we read it. It says, Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Marah in the valley. So get the picture. Here's Gideon. He's called all the troops together, all the people of Israel from all the tribes around that area, and they're going to come up against the Midianites who've been pursuing them, persecuting them for seven long years. But it introduces him as Jeroboam. Now, Baal is the god of who? The Ammonites. But it's also the god of the Israelites. Because who did Joash, the father of Gideon, have an altar to in his backyard? Baal. Well, where is this coming from? Why is he suddenly referred to as Jeroboam? Well, we know again from chapter 6, verse 32, that on the day that the... He had torn down his father's idol, and the people came, and they're upset. His dad named his name Jeroboam. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jeroboam. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. He broke down whose altar? Baal's altar. So suddenly, this kid, I don't know how old Gideon is at this point, but he's a young man, and suddenly his name has been changed from Gideon, which basically means hacker, and now it's Jeroboam, let Baal contend against him. It literally means contend with Baal. His dad has changed his name, and part of his name is the false god he used to worship and probably still worships. He just doesn't have an idol. It's an interesting thing to name your kid, right? When your kid's just gotten called by God Almighty to come do something for him. So why does he get this name? And why does the author of the book use it to open up chapter 7? I don't think this is just coincidence, happenstance. It has everything to do with what the name means, contend with Baal. What you've got going on here, guys, is God Almighty going up against Baal. And Gideon's just a tool in the hands of God Almighty. This is really going to be about God and Baal, not Gideon and Baal. See, when Joash is confronted by all his neighbors because they've lost their idol and they want to kill his son for having done it, here's what he says. Will you contend for Baal? He's talking to his neighbors. You're upset. You've lost your God. I'm the one that paid for it. I'm the one that built it. And now you're mad and you want to kill my son. Are you going to fight for Baal? Are you going to save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. In other words, 
you come against my son, I'll kill you. He's defending his boy. Now, again, it's his God. His son tore down his idol. But then he says, if he, Baal, is a God, let him contend for himself. See, I think he's starting to learn something. When his son went out there and tore down this altar, nothing happened to his son. Hmm, I wonder what kind of God Baal really is. He didn't smite my son. He didn't smoke my son. He didn't do anything. I wonder if he really is a God. So he says, if he is a God, this, this is like a prophetic statement and he doesn't even know it. Because what this story is going to tell us is he's what? Not a God. Baal is not a God. Yet who has been worshiping this false God? The people of Israel. The people of God, Yahweh, Elohim, Jehovah. They've been worshiping a false God, and that's the story of the entire book, right? It's about idolatry. And guys, we've got idolatry rampant in our lives. Not the same kind. I don't have an Asherah pole in my backyard. I don't have an idol on my mantelpiece. You know, I probably have one in a cabinet where I turn it on every night and I watch it. Um, you may have a bass boat in your garage or your backyard. You may have a 401k that you put all kinds of hope in. You've, you've, we've got idols. Anything that we put in place of God that we turn to instead of God to bring us peace, confidence, significance, hope, pleasure, that's a God. And so the question we have is, is it really a God? Or is God going to be God? That's the story of the book of Judges. It's the story of the whole Bible. Because the people of Israel had done evil in the sight of God. What is it they had done? It's been made really clear through six and seven chapters now. What had they done? They abandoned the Lord. They went after other gods. They provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord. They served the Baals and the Asherah. The evil Israel had done was not sexual immorality. It wasn't that they cheated on their income tax. It was the fact that they had turned their back on God and gone after other gods. The greatest sin you and I can commit, in my mind, is going after anything other than God to bring us what only God can give. Joy, peace, contentment, happiness, fulfillment, security. That's the greatest sin we can commit, even as Christians. Because we're basically telling God, I don't need you. I got my 401k. I got money in the bank. I'm a pretty smart guy. I've got my career. I've got all this going for me. And if I'm down, I turn on the TV. If I'm, if I'm sad, I drink. You know, if, if I don't get what I want for my wife, I look at porn. I've got these other gods I turn to rather than you. But see, it's all going to be about who are you giving credence and credibility to? Is it God or is it Baal? And that's the story of the book of Gideon or the story of the life of Gideon, all these non-existent gods. And I love this indictment from Isaiah, from the lips of God. How foolish are those who manufacture idols? These prized objects are really worthless. The people who worship idols don't know this, so they're all put to shame. Who but a fool would make his own God, an idol that cannot help him one bit? All who worship idols will be disgraced, along with the, the craftsmen, mere humans who claim they can make a god. Now, we read that and we go, yeah, how stupid to take a piece of wood and carve it into an idol and sit it on your mantelpiece. But we do the same thing. You know, we build our career and we think, it's my career that will protect me through life. It's my, you know, 
money that will protect me through retirement. And we make a God with our own hands, and we bow down and we worship it. And it's no different than what they were doing. There's another passage that talks about how a man will go out and chop down a tree, and he'll cut it into two logs. One log he'll burn on the fire to warm himself, and the other half he'll turn into an idol that he has to carry everywhere it goes. It can't talk. It can't do anything. And he never makes the connection. I burned half of this log, but this half I worship. That doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. But see, logic doesn't go into our minds when we start worshiping other things. This Baal is non-existent, but to the Ammonites, he was real. And sadly, to Joash, the brothers of Gideon, and probably even Gideon himself, they still believed that Baal had power. And this was going to be a match between Baal and Yahweh. So what happens? Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early, encamped by the spring of Herod. They meet them in the valley, and there's going to be a battle. At least that's what Gideon thinks. Because he's called, he's blown, blown the trumpet, he's got to go up against the Midianites. He's thinking warfare. He's thinking normal, everyday warfare. And they're going to meet in this valley just south of the Sea of Galilee. It's a very specific place. God has told him to go there. He's called the people there, and they're going to go to battle. And then look what God does. I love this story. I love it because it's not me. It's Gideon. Look what God does to Gideon. Remember, this is the guy who tested God. Now watch God test Gideon. God says, the people with you are too many. Now, you're the general of an army. You've gathered all these people. You've watched them come in. You're probably thinking, this isn't enough. And God goes, it's too many. What general ever wants to hear that? you got too many troops. So God says, send them home. Because if they win, they'll think they did it. So he tells Gideon, who's blown the trumpet, called all the people in. you got too many people. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Now, just stop for a second. That is so stupid and illogical. You want me to do what, God? There's 135 Midianites in the valley. I've gathered 32,000 Israelites, and you want me to ask who's afraid? And whoever's afraid, I have to send home. Yeah, that's exactly what I want you to do. But he does it, amazingly. And it says 22,000 of them leave. Now, can you imagine Gideon's heart at that point? And the other 10,000 who are standing there going, what just happened? Why didn't I raise my hand? I, I think all 32,000 were afraid, but 10,000 were too too much under peer pressure to raise their hand, and then they're wishing they had left. He's left with 10,000 men. So let's stop and think about this. What's really happening? All of this, guys, is the work and the will of God. Do not miss that this morning. This is God's will. God has called these people, the Midianites, against them. Why? Because the people have been evil. The Israelites have forsaken God. So what does it say? The Lord gave them Israel into the hand of Midian for seven years. For seven years they've suffered at the hands of the Midianites. Who sent the Midianites? God. Who sent 135,000 Midianites into that valley? God. So this problem is a God problem ordained by God, brought on Israel by God. Again, don't miss that. They were his instruments. How many times have we seen that in the Old Testament? 
where God brings the enemy against the people of Israel, be it Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, the Assyrians. God uses the enemy, and he brings them against them. And it says, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of of the east would come up against Israel. Why? Because they had forsaken God. Who sent them? God. And the whole size of this problem is God's ordained will for those people. It says they come like locusts in number. Their camels could not be counted, and they laid waste the land. Now, here's what I want you to really think about. If whatever it is you're going through in your life right now, whether it's your marriage isn't going well, uh, your finances are in a disarray, you got a rebellious kid, whatever it is you're going through, you've got cancer, you've got to get it through your head that that came into your life through the sovereign will of God. There's a guy in this room right now who's got cancer, and he and I had breakfast yesterday, and he's fully aware of this. As a matter of fact, this is the second time he's heard this lesson. That cancer was not caused by God as far as I'm concerned, but guess what? God definitely allowed that cancer into this man's life. Was God up in heaven when the diagnosis was given to him by the doctor that you've got cancer, and God went, what? You've got cancer? When did that happen? No, God's like, I got this. I'm with you. I'm not going to forsake you. You're going through the valley of the shadow of death, but guess what? I'm with you. I'm going to walk with you. And there's no guarantee. He has no guarantee of healing, but he's trusting God. He's trusting God for the outcome. All of this is the will of God. Whatever the size of your problem, the size of the enemy in your life, whatever it is, it's there because God allowed it into your life, and it's there so that God can show his power in your life. But see, we got to believe that. Numbers are all throughout these two chapters, 7 and 8. You're going to see references to number. It says the camp of Midian was north of them, down in that valley. And the word there is actually armed host. It's not a campground. It's not a place. It's the people occupying the place. 135,000 of these people in the camp. And that word camp is used 11 times in 20 verses. And it goes on. It says the people are too many. What people? The 32,000 Israelites. you got too many So they send 22,000 home and 10,000 remain. And then it's still too many, God says. You got too many. 10,000 is too many. And he leaves them with 300 men who lapped. And we'll unpack that in just a second. So look at this. Numbers all throughout the book. How are the enemy described? Like locusts in abundance, without number, like sand on the seashore in abundance. Why are numbers so important? Because it's establishing that the odds are definitely not in Gideon's favor. This is a hopeless, helpless situation. But what do we know? God is greater. See, God's all through the story, whether Gideon believes it or not. It really doesn't matter how many Midianites are down in that valley. It really doesn't matter how bad the odds look and how big the opposition seems to be. You know, this, this gentleman and I who had breakfast yesterday, you know, one of the realities he, he knows and he's going to have to con- continue to remind himself is he's going to have good days and bad days. You know, the, the day after chemo is not a good day. You don't feel good. Your body's reacting and you begin to wonder, God, what are you doing? Why are you letting this happen in my life? 
but he's also going to have good days where he knows God's with him. And that's the reality of life as a believer walking through this world, this sin-filled world. We got to keep remembering that greater is he than in, that is in us than he who is in the world. See, God had Gideon and those 300 men right where he wanted them, in the valley with 135,000 Midianites. And from Gideon's perspective, it all looks really, really bad. God, nothing about this looks good. God, this is totally a losing proposition. And yet, 1 John 4, 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Do you believe that? See, I can believe that when everything's going great. When it gets hard to believe it, when does everything go south? God, I don't know. Today, it doesn't feel like you're great. It doesn't feel like you're greater than my enemy. You're greater than my bad finances. You're greater than my marriage that's about to go under. That you're greater than the cancer. That you're greater than X, Y, Z. You pick the problem. God is greater. And that's what he's trying to tell Gideon. So just how bad is it? Real quickly. We start the story out, 135,000 Midianites, 32,000 Israelites, four to one odds. I wouldn't take that bet. I wouldn't go into that battle, but he does. And then God sends, down, sends home 22,000 fearful soldiers, leaving Gideon with 10,000. Now it's 14 to one odds. And you can just sense that his fear is starting to bubble up to the surface. He's going, all right, I should have never left the wine press. This is worse than I could have ever imagined. Oh, no, it's going to get worse, Gideon, because God's going to send home 9,700 more, and he leaves him with 300, 450 to 1 odds. So get the picture, 135,000 well-armed, well-trained Midianites in the valley and Gideon and 300 men. This is not a good situation. Nothing about it is good. And God says, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you. Gideon's going, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, all right, yeah. I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the others go, every man to his home. So 9,700 men walk away. Again, I want us to look at this. I want us to think about this. This is not what Gideon's standing next to. He's not standing next to the 300 who guarded the gates of Thermopylae. He's, he's not got six-pack ab men there with spears. He's got 300 guys who lapped water like a dog. That's what the text tells us. Everyone who laps with water with his tongue as a dog laps, keep. The others send away. What was the test God gave him? He said, send those, those 10,000 men down to the river and let them drink. And 9,700 of them got down on their hands and knees, stuck their face in the water, and drank. 300 of them dipped their hand in the water, brought it up in their mouth, and they licked it. And God says, keep those guys. What's going on here? I love how commentators get kind of just twisted off sometimes on this, and they try to make it do what it's not really meant to do. And they'll say, well, because those 300 men stuck their hand in the water and they brought it up to their mouth, that means they have situational awareness. They're looking for the enemy. Hey, guys, everybody knows where the enemy is. There's 135,000 of them down in the valley. You don't need to look for the enemy. There's really nothing about this other than who, whatever group was the smallest, that's the one God was going to choose. It's not how they were drinking. 
It's the fact that God was looking for the smallest number so that he would get the glory. See, this word lakak is really interesting because it's an onomatopoeia, which basically is it sounds like what it's describing. So if you say that word over and over again, lakak, 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 it sounds like my dog drinking out of the water bowl. That's what it sounds like. And that's what it's meant to sound like. So what he's got is 300 men who God compares to dogs. Now, this is not a compliment to an Israelite because the Israelites hated dogs. They were worse than pigs, and pigs were forbidden by God. Nobody had a pet dog. Nobody petted a dog. Nobody wanted anything to do with a dog. They would use them to guard their sheep, perhaps, but they were filthy, and it was used as a sign of reproach. If I called you a dog, you'd punch me in the face. God just called these 300 men dogs. So here's Gideon's confidence just booming, right? 135,000 Midianites, and I'm stuck with 300 men who lap water like a dog. And I got to win the battle. But see, what's God trying to teach him? Zechariah 4, 6, it's not by force, nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. You want to win the victory? It's going to have to be by God's power, not yours. And it doesn't matter how many people you bring to the table. It doesn't bring, matter how much brain power you bring to the table. It's God who's going to win the victory. And the same thing's true in this story. So it says the people took their provisions, their trumpets, and he sends everybody else home. He ends up with 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. The camp, the armed host of the Midianites, 135,000 strong, sitting in the valley, and Gideon sitting there looking at it with 300 men who lap water like a dog. See, that's, th this is an incredibly bad situation for Gideon. 135,000 strong, and he's got 300 men. And he's smart enough to know this is not good odds. This is not going to be a win winnable deal. And Gideon is beginning to be scared or continuing to grow in his fear. Because he's looking at it how? From a human perspective. He's still wondering, is my God, this God, bigger than the God I was worshiping, which is Baal? Who's going to win the day? Who's going to win the battle? So God says, get up, Gideon, and go down into the camp. Which camp? The camp of the Midianites, 135,000 strong. And he says, I've given it into your hand. But then he says, but if you're afraid. Did God know whether he was afraid or not? No, God knew his heart. And God knew, you're still wrestling with fear, aren't you? You're looking around at the 300 men who lap water like a dog, and you're wondering, what in the heck am I doing? So God says, go down to the camp with, with Pura, your servant. Now, I read that, and I go, this is your solution? I, yeah, I'm afraid, and you want me to take my servant and walk down in the midst of the 135,000, and that's supposed to encourage me? Have you lost your mind, God? And God goes, yeah, that's exactly what I, I want to do. Now it's two. Two against 135,000. I don't even know what those odds are, but I wouldn't take them. But he does it. He says, go down and you'll, you'll hear what they say, and you're going to be encouraged. You're going to be strengthened. All right, God, I'll do it. And he goes down with Pura's servant to the outpost of the armed men who are in the camp. That's in there for a reason, right? He's walking into an armed military camp. With who? His servant. I don't know anything about Pura. I wouldn't take Pura to the stock show. But he's taking him down into the armed camp. He's a servant for a reason. 
So they go down there, and this is what happens. Fascinating story. It says the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the people of the east lay along the valley again. How? Like locusts in abundance. Their camels are without number. They're like sand on the seashore in abundance. Remember, two guys walking into that. So Gideon comes, and he meets. He here, overhears a conversation between two Midianite privates. And one of them's telling a dream he had. He says, behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of the Midianites and came to the tent and struck it so it fell flat and turned it upside down. That's a weird dream. Isn't it interesting that Gideon and Pura get to hear this dream at that moment? And then this is the weird part. His, his buddy goes, well, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. If I'm the buddy and I heard this guy's dream, I'd go, what did you eat last night? But he's got the interpretation. Where did he get this from? Yahweh. This whole scene is about Yahweh. This whole scene is about what? It's about the sovereignty of God. See, Gideon goes into the camp. He overhears a conversation. One's describing a dream that he just happened to have that night. And he's got a buddy who knows the interpretation. Is this luck? Is this karma? Is this just happenstance? No, this is the sovereign will of God. Because look at this dream. A loaf of barley bread rose into the camp and destroys the tent. Now, barley was the cheapest grain you could use. And it's a picture of how bad things were. Remember, they were stealing all their grain, so they're left eating barley. And barley represents Israel. And the camp is the Midianites. And the tent is their dwelling place. They're no longer going to be able to stay. God's going to do a miracle. And this Midianite private seems to know that it's the sword of Gideon. And God's given the camp into his hand. See, God is screaming at Gideon through these two men, Midianites, what he's going to do. Now, just stop and think. How did he even understand them if they're Midianites? I don't think he spoke their language. It doesn't tell us, but possibly he heard them in his own language. Kind of sounds like Pentecost. See, this is all a miracle. This is all the hand of God. God trying to show Gideon, don't worry about the 300. Don't worry about the 32,000. Don't worry about the 135,000. I've got this. And it says he was encouraged. He worshiped. And he returns to the camp and he goes, rise up. Come on, let's go. We're going to town. The host of Midian is ours. And it tells us he divides them in into three groups of 100, and he gives them their trumpets, empty jars with torches inside. Again, where did he get this from? Obviously from God. But I'm not going into battle with trumpets and torches. But see, he's not really going into battle. God's going into battle. All they do is they blow the trumpets, they break the jars, which exposes the light. They held the torches up, and it says... They cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. See, God is about to do something great. And it says, when they blow the trumpets, the Lord sets every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and they flee. So what's happening here? What do we know about the Israelites? There's not a single one of them holding a sword. They've got a torch, and they've got a trumpet. Who's holding swords? The Midianites. Who's killing who? The Midianites are killing the Midianites. They're in a panic. They don't know how many Israelites there are, and so they think they're under siege, and so they begin to just swing at anything and everything that comes by, and in their panic, they start killing one another, and they all disperse. They leave the valley. They go back home. 
See, the Lord did this. This is a divine deliverance, and he gets to watch it, and God did it because he wanted to restore their faith in him. I'm God. I'm great. I'm your deliverer. I'm the one you should be trusting in. I'm your king. I'm your sovereign. Quit trusting in fake gods. See, God wants them to be aligned with him, have allegiance to him, worship him and him alone. But see, it's not Jeroboam who's contending with Baal. It's not Gideon, it's God. And guess what? God just won the day with overwhelming odds and with really, really bad help. 300 men who lap water like a dog and a very fearful Gideon. But see, what's going to happen in the story is Gideon's going to make it all about him. And this is what I want you to really take away is how you take God's victories and try to make them about your victory. You take what God has done, what God has ordained, and you try to get some glory out of it. And that's exactly what Gideon's going to do. He's going to try to get glory. He wants to get some of the share of what's happened because he's got something else going on in his heart. It says, the men of Israel were called. He calls Naphtali. He calls Asher. He calls Manasseh. And they pursue after Midian. This is the point in the story where things begin to change. He sends for messengers from Ephraim. What's going on here? This is a huge point in the story where everything begins to shift in the wrong direction. And it's going to go south really quick. See, God sent Midianites. They were instruments in his hand. They persecuted the people. Now God has just routed them. They've left the valley and they've gone home. The problem has been solved. But see, Gideon's thinking they're going to come back. God didn't finish the victory. God didn't finish the plan. The army left. We got to chase them. We got to do more. But what did God tell him he was going to do? He said, go down against the camp, the armed host in the valley, very specific. And he says, I've given it into your hand. And what did God do? They slew one another, and whoever was left, left the valley. They dispersed. They got away. But see, God, Gideon's not satisfied. And you're going to see why he's not satisfied. You're going to see that he had an ulterior motive behind everything that he did. So he calls all the people. He calls Naphtali, Asher, Manasseh. He calls the Ephraimites. He starts calling all these people, come join the 300. We got more work to do. God's not done yet, but nowhere in the story does God tell him to do any of this. What he's doing is he's calling in the 31,700 God had sent away. Don't miss that. God did his victory with 300. Gideon now calls back everybody who was fearful, and he says, come back. We got more work to do. This is not of God. He's taken God's plan and come up with his own, and nowhere in the story does God advocate anything that Gideon does from this point forward. And that's why I think the Spirit has left Gideon, and Gideon's operating under his own wisdom, and it's not going to help, even though it's going to look like he has some victories. So it's all about his agenda at this point. Why and what's going on? Well, he's seeking revenge. Revenge on what? Well, what you've got to keep in mind is there's, there's another underlying thing going on behind the scenes that we miss when we read this story. He's wanting payback against the two kings of the Midianites, why? Because they did something that offended him. They did something to his family, and he wants revenge against them. And so God's victory is not enough. God, God has not finished what Gideon thinks he needs to do. And so what is he going to do? 
He's going to capture the two kings of the Midianites, two men called Zeba and Zalmunna. And he's going to ask them, he goes, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? Now, this is talking about an event that's not told anywhere in the story of Judges. But it had to have happened within the last seven years. These men had killed somebody who Gideon knew. And they answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. These two kings had killed his brothers. And he's been wanting revenge ever since. And so he's taking God's plan and turning it into his plan and the opportunity to get his will done, not God's will done. Did God tell him to kill these two kings? No. God didn't even tell him to chase these two kings. But suddenly, God's plan became Gideon's plan. He even asked his kid to kill these two men, and he refuses. He's obsessed with revenge. He wants to kill them. And here's the sad part about this story. You got Zeb and Zalmunna, two lords or kings of the Midianites. He captures them. They had killed his brothers, and now he wants to take their lives so that he can get revenge. That's an incredible, incredibly important part of this story. And to do so, this is how bad Gideon is. Gideon's going to kill his own fellow Israelites in the process. So he's going to take the victory of God and turn it into defeat. He's going to make his will more important than God's, and it's not going to bring glory to God. Everything about this story leads us in a wrong direction. It says, Gideon came to the Jordan and he crossed over. The 300 men who were with him and they're exhausted yet pursuing. Why are they exhausted? All they did was hold a torch and a trumpet. They're exhausted because they're out of God's will and they're chasing an enemy he never told them to chase. And now they're famished and they're hungry. And they're going to go to these two towns. One's called Succoth and the other one's called um, Penuel. And he's going to ask for food. Feed my men. And they're going to both go, no. There's only 300 of you. There's a whole lot more Midianites. We're not going to help you. And he's going to say, okay, you want, you're not going to help me? Then I'm going to swear a curse on you. I'm going, to, I'm going to be back. He says, and when I come back, I'm going to flail your flesh with thorns of the, of the what? Of the wilderness. I'm going to take these long thorns. I'm going to make a whip, and I'm going to lash you. Who's he saying this to? Israelites. His own brothers. All because he wants to get revenge. And then he says to the men of Penuel, who also refused to give him bread. Again, Israelites. And he says, I'm going to come and tear down this tower. I'm going to destroy your defenses. I'm going to make you helpless. He's doing this to his brothers, his fellow Israelites. This is not the will of God. And it tells us later, he comes back and he keeps his oath. He says he whips the people in Succoth and he goes to Penuel. And he not only tears down their tower, he kills them. He, he wipes out every man in that town, and they're all Jews. This is Gideon, the judge, the deliverer. And here's what's really fascinating, and this is one of the reasons I love studying Scripture. The word Penuel, the name Penuel, comes from Jacob. Jacob met God in Penuel. Jacob wrestled with God in Penuel. Jacob contended with God in Penuel, and he named it Penuel for that reason, and it means the face of God. Isn't it interesting that here's Gideon going to the very place where Jacob wrestled with God, contended with God, and he named it the face of God because he discovered that God is greater than I am. And now here's Gideon out to get revenge, and he's killing the people of God in the town that's named after the face of God. He kills the people of Israel. 
And everything about this is about Gideon's will, Gideon's desire. And I'll end with this, because this is how chapter 8 ends, guys, and it's going to set up next week. It says, Zebin Salmon said, rise up, fall on us, kill us, and he does. And he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels, and we're going to see that this begins the downward spiral of Gideon, and it leads to even worse things for the people of Israel. So here's, here's your discussion question. There's only one. And you're going to have to really think about this one, guys. Because here's the story. Gideon, God had sent the Midianites to attack the people of Israel. They were sent by God. Remember, it's his will done his way. Gideon's family had an idol to Baal in their backyard. They were idolatrous. They were unfaithful to God. And that's the reason the Midianites are there. Even his brothers who were killed by the Midianites were killed because they were idolatrous. God sent those Midianites. But in avenging his brother's death, Gideon ended up contending with God. Remember, his name is contend with Baal. But now who is he fighting? God. He just killed the people of God. He's outside the will of God. And here's what I want you to think about. How does that apply to your life today? What would that look like in your life where God has done something great and you decide to take it a different direction and you step outside of his will and now you're contending with God? Remember, Jesus said, whoever is for me is with me. Whoever is not with me is against me. How could you turn God's victory into defeat and actually begin to fight against God? And it's going to take some thought. It's going, to, it's going to take you thinking about your own life and even examples from your own life where you've actually done that. So, Father, I pray as we talk around these tables that you would open our eyes, open our minds to be able to think about how we've done this in our own lives. I know I have. And how easy it is to, to see you work in a way, but it's not enough. You didn't do it the way I wanted it done. You didn't complete the task as I saw it. And, Father, we then take matters into our own hands, and we want to help you do what you should have done. And then we begin contending with you. We actually fight you rather than see your victory as exactly what you wanted at that time. So, Father, again, open our eyes, open our hearts, help us to share, help us to learn, help us to grow, help us to apply. But more than anything, help us to lean more and more on you and your goodness and your might and your strength and not our own. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.